safety for everybody involved. Um, but for right here, right now, help us to let go of everything, focus on you, learn, grow, and to really apply. Not just know it, Lord, but to apply it and always say and do in your name. Amen. Acts 21, continuing our study here through the book of Acts. We're reaching a turning point. We're reaching a turning point here in the book of Acts. Um, Paul is heading towards Jerusalem. He's finishing up his third missionary journey. Now, in the back of your Bibles, you probably have maps. And in one of the maps is going to be a map of Paul's different missionary journey. We're at the end of the third missionary journey. You're going to see a lot of names here in the first few verses of towns and locations that he's going through. And as you read through that, you're going to stop and say, why is this important? It sets the realism of what's really going on here. These are real people going on real trips, really spreading the gospel. And when this book was written and passed around 2,000 years ago, as you would read through this, you would understand the names and locations and be able to stop and say, okay, that's where Paul went. That's how that church got planted there. And it would be the equivalent of us saying today that, hey, I'm going to head up to Toledo. I'm going to take 235, head north, cross the bridge over in Waterville, take 24 into town. We know that because we're used to the locations. They would know that looking at it. So if you look at the back of your Bibles, you'll see the map, Paul's third missionary journey heading back towards Jerusalem. When he gets back to Jerusalem at the end of chapter 21, which we'll get into uh, next week, Paul's arrested. And it's going to take us through the rest of the book of Acts for the next six chapters. This, like I said, is a turning point. And this arrest is going to be God's plan for his life because he's going to be able to go spread the gospel in ways that he couldn't imagine. There's going to be books written from prison like Philippians that still bless us today. And it was through this trial and tribulation that the Lord actually used it. So with that being said, finishing up the third missionary journey, heading back to Jerusalem, let's pick it up here in verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running straight course, we came to Kaz, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyra. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. Like I said, you'll see that at the back of your map. Now unloading her cargo. They did not have the passenger ships that we have today. So therefore, if you wanted to go to a location, most of the time you'd pay a little money and get aboard a cargo ship. So the ship is landing at Tyra, unloading your cargo, and it looks like it's going to be there for about seven days. Now, what would you do? Traveling back then would not be easy. It would not be comfortable. It would not be nice in any way whatsoever. So you got a few days to finally rest, regroup. What does Paul do? Verse 4, in finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Finding disciples. This is where sometimes the translation does not come across as clear. That word for finding is a very strong word in the Greek. Very strong word. It translates over to finding, but it carries this maximum effort of looking for people, looking for something. It was it, Paul, dare I say, really was desperate to find some disciples because that's the importance of the fellowship and of the body of Christ and the encouragement that comes with that. We've kind of lost that. And the church today, we don't have that intense desire for fellowship. We're really kind of content with an idea of maybe an hour a week. And maybe it's an hour once or twice a month. That's our body of Christ. That's our fellowship. And when we do get together, we're more comfortable talking about sports, politics, and the weather. Not, hey, what are you doing to go deeper in the Lord? Hey, this is what I'm doing to go deeper in the Lord. How can I pray for you? How can you pray for me? This word for fellowship really carries this connotation, this significance. Just remember the verses. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. 
Even the more as we see the day approaching. Some translations say, let us stir up one another for good works. That word for stir up means to get in there and say, hey, I want to see you go deeper. I want to see you want me to go deeper. What can we do to help each other do this in love? And then even more as we see the day approaching, if we truly do believe the end is coming, we truly do believe that Jesus Christ is returning, this helps us to have a focus on things that matter in eternity as we get together in the body of Christ. And I want you to think about fellowship. Once again, not just talking about sports, politics, and weather. How are you doing spiritually? How can I pray for you? And I want you to think about it more than just a casual interaction at church on Sunday but to really understand what it means throughout the week, throughout the day, to really be the body of Christ. You know, it even goes one step further in the book of Malachi. It's in Malachi 3. The Bible says that God has a book of remembrance where he listens in on our conversations and then writes down the things we're talking about. You know, Dawn does that with the boys. You know, she's got these books, these little memory books, and if they say something funny or say something cute, she'll go and she'll write it down. And as parents, we can go back and look at it and say, do you remember this? God's the same way. When we get together as the body of Christ and we sit here and say, hey, let me tell you what the Lord's doing for me this week. Hey, can you pray for me this week? The Lord is up in heaven. And according to Malachi, he's like writing this down, saying, boy, look at my kids. They like talking about me. They like encouraging one another. And that blesses him. And I see that with Paul, this intense desire to say, I'm going to go find disciples because it's so important to have that fellowship and to have that encouragement. Be it at church on Sundays, Wednesdays, wherever it is, whatever your work schedule, life schedule allows, the importance of fellowship. And not even here, but even when you're gone on vacation, work, whatever, finding the body of Christ and being blessed by it. So as he's with these disciples, they remind him in verse 4, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to build on this here in a little bit. When we had come to the end of those days, verse 5, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyra, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. There's a theme developing here, and it's the theme of family. Did you catch this in verse 5? The wives and children. Did you catch in verse 9, the four virgin daughters who prophesied? The importance of family. Now, here's something, though. What I have noticed is sometimes we have an issue with family. We tend to worship at the altar of family. And we got to be careful about that. Because what happens is you make the family the focus, and the focus is always supposed to be Jesus Christ. Now, now don't take this the wrong way. Be a family. God has brought you together. Amen. Go out and impact eternity as a family. That's the goal. But what sometimes what we see is so much of an emphasis on family that we forget the eternity of who Jesus Christ and what really, really matters. If you remember correctly, when we started this study in Acts, and I can't remember it was, but it was quite some time ago, we talked about imagine you did not know church. Imagine you did not know really Christianity and you were going to look at the book of Acts and this was going to become your default for what Christianity was supposed to be. And so as you would go through this, you would say, okay, this, this is what's normal. This is, this is obviously it. But the problem is we have thousands of years of church history that kind of affects us and kind of changes us. And for many of you, you've come to church for many, many years, maybe many decades, and this is just how we do church. 
But if you just had this, and you just saw this, even just this chapter, you would look at verse 5 and say, hey, wives and children and the men are supposed to get together and pray. We're supposed to get together and kneel down on the shore and pray together. Okay, that's what we should do. That, that's normal. We would look at verse 9 and say, hey, my kids are supposed to grow up spiritually strong. These grew up to be prophets. Hey, they're supposed to grow up physically pure. Four virgin daughters. That's normal. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what would we become our normal. See, here's the thing about normal. Everybody has a different definition of normal. You think the way you grew up was normal. And then you got married. And you think that your wife's family is not normal. Because they didn't grow up the same way you did. Your wife's family then thinks that your family's not normal. One of the things I do with premarital counseling is we get towards the end and I do this little just ask questions just for fun. Just to kind of make sure everybody's on the same page. And one of the questions I ask at the end, I say it's an essay question. I said, tell me what you think of your in-laws. And it usually comes out with this, oh, they, they're just really nice people. Really looking forward to getting to know them better. It's like, okay, cut through the baloney. What do you really think of your in-laws here? Well, I don't know how she raised them that way. I just don't know what she was thinking. We do foster care. We think we're normal. We've had foster kids come into our house that are older, and after a day or two, they look at us and say, you guys are so weird. Because we think what we're doing is normal. What's normal today? Is normal today really normal according to the Bible? Think about how we answer this question, and I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. This is something I think about a lot for me and Dawn as we raise our kids, etc., Hey, how, how's, how's your daughter doing? Oh, doing really good. She got all A's and B's. And, you know, sports did really well. She made it to district. She made it to regional. She made it to whatever. Oh, that's great. Okay, how's she doing spiritually? Well, she did really good. She got all A's and B's and she made it to district. So what it comes down to is all A's and B's but lukewarm in Jesus Christ. Hey, how's your son doing? Doing really good. School's going well. He finished strong. Uh, neat future ahead of him. How's he doing spiritually? Well, really doing good, going strong. Neat future ahead of him, finished strong. But I haven't seen him crack his Bible open in three or four weeks. He doesn't really come to church anymore. In fact, I don't even know where he stands with the Lord. Isn't that more important? See, what problem is, our normal is we do this trite little, well, everybody's good. You're going to go to a lot of graduation parties over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to base success off of pieces of papers and letters and accomplishments. And I'm not putting those things down. Those are a passage of life. It's important to work as if working for the Lord. Those things are important to a season, to an extent. But what I'm asking us to do is to look past what's normal and really stop and say, according to the book of Acts, what's normal? Can you imagine somebody answering this way? Hey, how's your daughter doing? Great. She's staying pure to marriage. She's loving Jesus with all of her heart. In fact, I see her praying all the time, and she just loves Christ. See, that's the book of Acts normal answer, because that's all that matters. What would happen if we looked at biblical Christianity as normal? Our kids grow up thinking it's normal to witness. It's normal to hand out tracts. It's normal to open up your home to people that need a place, to serve, to love, to read, to pray. That that's just normal Christianity. So therefore, when they grow up and they get married and have kids, they raise their kids just to be normal biblical Christians. 
See, I, I see this in Acts 21. I see them kneeling and praying, the wives, the children. I see the four virgin daughters. I see the prophets. And I'm not saying to pick on anybody or to be negative. I'm just saying maybe we need to rethink what is considered normal and get back to the book of Acts. Because Philip raising these kids, he raised them, verse 9, to be physically pure. He raised them, verse 9, to be spiritually strong. What does that look like? Let's go with it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, please. Let's talk about this for a second. Deuteronomy 6. There's a great passage on parenting, and you wouldn't think it'd be in the book of Deuteronomy, but it is. And you may not be in the season of kids right now. You may not be in the season of grandkids. But I tell you, you always got an influence over somebody spiritually. You really do. And you could be a person of prayer. Your kids may have grown up. You may be out of that season. But you had six people stand up here in front of you today. And we can pray for those people. Look at Deuteronomy 6 here. And look at what's considered normal with kids. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Lord. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Please note verse 5, all. All your heart, all your soul, all your strength. God's asking for one thing, and that's just everything. Everything. And it's not this legalistic have to. He's saying, I want everything of your life. Verse 6, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's just normal. And we need to rethink that. So does this mean that you follow Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, you live out the book of Acts, that your kids will always grow up? And just be this amazing, on-fire, radical Christian for Jesus Christ. Well, there's a blessing and a curse, and it's called free will. And we got to remember that. And trust me, I know the pressures of that. I've raised my kids in front of you guys for the last 13 years. And I know the burden of expectation, because I've heard it. I know when my kids have acted up in class, and I've heard the comment about the pastor's kid. I know when they are expected to know the entire book of Malachi and have it memorized. I know that. I know the expectations you have. I have felt those expectations. And I've forgiven most of you, not all of you, but for most of you, I've forgiven. It's hard. We're raising, trying to raise pure kids in an impure world. And I'm just asking you to rethink what normal Christianity looks like. That's what I'm asking you to do. If you just go with the book of Acts... This is considered normal. I'm asking you to think about that. And I'm asking you to think as parents or grandparents or influencers of kids, what do you think your influence should look like? A verse that really hits me is out of Romans 16. It's Romans 16, verse 19, that I'm supposed to be innocent concerning evil. A couple years ago, we made a change at our house. And it's, this is what we do. If it's a movie I can't watch with my boys, I don't watch it. If it's a song I can't listen to in front of the boys, I don't listen to it. If it's a game I can't play with them, I don't play it. Those five boys are growing up thinking what I do is normal. And I want to make sure I'm setting that example. So does that mean there's movies I wanted to see? Yeah. But you know what? What am I really missing? I'm just missing more of the world. I don't mean this in some legalistic have to. Please don't take it that way. I'm saying this is what the Lord's laid on my heart. And I want to stop and say, okay, Lord, what's normal? Well... I want my boys to be boys kneeling down and praying. I want them to be pure. I want them to be spiritually strong. And this is what I see in Acts. And I see Philip living this out. 
And I, that's what I want, is for that just to become normal. So what does it look like for Philip? I, I tell you, Philip is amazing, guys. You know, our ultimate example is Jesus Christ. But Paul also said, imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus. There's so much we can learn from Philip. Philip is first introduced to us in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the original seven. Seven deacons, if you remember the story correctly. They had too many widows coming. They couldn't get the food distribution down. And so therefore they raised up these seven men to take over a widow's ministry and a food ministry. That's where he starts. Acts 8 were reintroduced to Philip. And by this time he's a missionary. He's being sent over to uh, Samaria. And he's turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Then God calls him out into the desert and he has a one-on-one evangelism with the Ethiopian eunuch. And that Ethiopian eunuch then goes home and spreads the gospel. And the Bible says the spirit takes Philip and he goes to Caesarea and then Philip disappears. So he's run a food ministry. He's run a widow's ministry. He's been a missionary. He's an evangelist here according to verse 8. And now 13 chapters later he shows up. Now it's hard sometimes to get time frames in the Bible. It really is. I encourage you, it's like, if when you go through and you read the Gospels, you just, you just assume, I do the same thing. Okay, well, Jesus calls the disciples, he calls the apostles, and this just all happens over a span of three years. When you really go break down the time frame of the Gospels, he doesn't call the 12 apostles to be apostles to about a year and a half into the ministry. He spent that much time with them. Here for Philip, you stop and you think, okay, it's been 13 chapters. It's been about 20 years. That's how long it's been. So about 20 years later, we're reintroduced to Philip, and look at what he's doing. He's opening his house, he's raising daughters, he's being an evangelist. I love this guy. Hey, I'll feed the widows, sure. I'll run a food ministry, sure. I'll be a missionary, I'll go where you tell me to go, sure. Hey, I'll open my house to anybody. Hey, I'll try to raise godly kids. I love this guy. And what an example he is for us. To stop and say, Lord, every element of my life is really yours. And this is kind of what it comes down to. Because when you take a look here at verse 8, and it says that they stayed at his house. He opened up his house. It's no longer his. It's all the Lord's. And, and I can't stress to you enough, reaching that point where you realize nothing is mine. That's all the Lord's. I mean, just think about how that sounds. My house. Who gave you the breath in your lungs to even raise the money to build that house? My paycheck, my car, my van... My time. If I'm truly a bondservant to the Lord, I've given it all over to him. And it sounds legalistic and it sounds really difficult, but I'm telling you guys, it's utterly freeing. When you stop and you realize I have no ties to anything. It's all the Lord's. I thought I was almost there. I really did. And I thought, Lord, it's not my house, it's your house. Within reason, whoever wants to move in, they can move in. Okay, Lord, it's not my money, it's your money. Lord, it's not my time. That one took me a while. Not my time, it's your time. Okay, Lord, it's it's your time. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm giving it all over to you. And then when we went down to Mexico, I realized there was something I've not given over to the Lord. And it sounds weird. It was our van. Now, I thought we'd given that over to the Lord because we've always said, Lord, it's yours however you want to use it. You know, as our kids grew and we kept having more children, it gets a little harder to have a vehicle to fit. At one time, we had five in car seats. You know, hard it is to find a vehicle that fits five car seats. And so we had this SUV that sat nine. We had the five car seats. We had Dawn and I. Then we had two foster placements. And it was just tight. I mean, there's no room for groceries. People are crawling over seats, etc. So God blessed us a couple years ago, and he gave us this van. And Dawn just, it's, this is what she's always wanted. We prayed about it, and God just really blessed it. And she said, I want to fill this van. She still wants to have more kids, but that's another story for another day. But she wants to take as many people as she can to church. 
she wants to just fill the van. And so we love this van. And it's just, Lord, it's yours. Use it. Oh, use it mightily for you. So we get down to Mexico. And, and unless you've been down there, it's kind of hard to, to visualize this. But the road that was in front of the church where we were staying at was a dirt road, and they had recently uh, concreted it. And they do things differently down there. It's just the way it is. Um, no forewarning. They just showed up and started concreting. And people's vehicles got trapped in. And as they concreted the road, they don't really worry about driveways in, off. Driveways kind of relative term. So there's six to eight inches of drop-off, you know. And so we get down there, and Bree tells us, you know, hey, sorry with the way the concrete didn't know, so you have to park your van on this hill. And so we parked it on this, this hill. And the way they blocked the road, because they didn't want anybody driving on the concrete road, they just took bulldozers and put tires and concrete slabs and dirt and made a little mountain. Well, and, and I'm not being mean. Please don't take it this any way whatsoever. Nothing is going to stop people in Mexico from doing what they want to do. I'm just telling you that right now. They drove over the concrete, the tires. And so part of our ministry was digging people out on a regular basis because they was right beside our van. And so day one, we're like, there's nothing we can do. There's no place to put this van. They're going to literally, and I, I can't put it into words to make you understand the inches that they were close to. They're getting stuck. Stones are flying. So God took us to Psalm 91. 10,000 may fall at your right hand. 1,000 may fall at your left, but none of it shall befall you. Okay, Lord, that's yours. So every morning I'd get up and I would do two things. Number one, the van didn't get stolen. Amen. I'm not joking. Number two, I'd get up and say, there's no broken windshields. Amen. And so this went on for four or five days. And about three days into it, realized it's not our van. Dawn had a great prayer. She says, Lord, I got to get home. That's what she said. I need the van to get home. God took care of it. And it's amazing how we think we hold on to stuff. But there's sometimes the Lord has to stop and say, yeah, you, you haven't given that one over to me yet. Philip, I think, gave everything over. Dawn's reading this amazing book. And whenever Dawn reads a book she thinks is really good, she makes me read it too. And so she has taken over our fridge with all these printouts of the book. She actually took a sticky note and wrote notes and put it in my wallet. And she emailed. I mean, this is just what Dawn does. And so this was on my fridge one morning. And I started reading through it. And this is the book she's reading. And I'm not going to read all of it. But it's about our possessions. And I'm just going to read two points. First point is this. I affirm God's full ownership of me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And that verse says that you're not your own. You're bought at a price. So right from the beginning, I, I don't even own myself. God bought me with his blood. I affirm God's full ownership of me and everything entrusted to me. Psalm 24, 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23, excuse me. I recognize that my money and possessions are in fact his. I'm his money manager, his delivery person. I will ask him what he wants me to do with his money and possessions. That mindset, it's not mine. And when it's not mine, it's so freeing. It's just, it's not mine. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, you, you know I need, I always tell the boys this, from what Paul said in Timothy, we need food in our bellies, we need clothes on our backs, we need a roof over our head, Lord. You know that. That's what you promised us. Promised us. Everything else, what, what do you want us to do? It's yours. And then when you get that, you look at Philip here, and it's like, hey, it's not my house. It's not my life. You want me to go to the desert? I'll go to the desert, Lord. You want me to open up my house? I'll open up my house. You want me to run a food ministry? I'll run a food ministry. It's all yours. And then one of the points later on says this, Recognizing that I cannot take earthly treasures from this world, 
I had determined to lay them up as heavenly treasures for Christ's glory and the eternal good of others and myself, affirming that heaven, not earth, is my home and Christ is my Lord. I commit myself to lay out his assets before him regularly, leaving nothing as untouchable, and ask his direction for what to do with and where to give his money. I'll start with this question. What am I hanging on to that you want me to give away? This is not some legalistic vow of poverty. It is a realization that there is nothing that is mine. It's all the Lord's. I've been bought at a price. And once you get that mindset, I'm just telling you, it's freeing to let go and say, Lord, if it's all yours, you're just going to take care of us. And it's just what an example. And when you read through Acts, this is just normal Christianity. It's just normal. Go back to what we studied on Acts chapter 2. They looked at nothing as they were their own. You need it? Be blessed by it. I see Philip. Stay. You want to stay? Stay. Now, you may be saying, okay, you're hitting this point of uh, stay hard. What's so big about that? Who did Philip have stay with him? Paul. Let's remind ourselves of this. Go back to Acts 8, please. Acts 8. He's opening his house up to Paul. Well, let's remind ourselves what happens in Acts 8, verse 4. Acts 8, 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip, this is our guy, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to him. That's a big deal on its own. No one liked the Samaritans. He's willing to go. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. God is moving in Philip's life. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Amen. You're amazing, Lord. You're amazing, God. Look what you did through Philip. But why did Philip leave in verses 4 and 5? Jump back to verse 1 of Acts 8. Now Saul, also known as Paul, was consenting to his death because in Acts 7, Paul just killed Stephen. One of the seven. Paul was there consenting to the death of Stephen and Paul is causing such an uproar. Philip has to go, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The guy that Philip has stay at his house is the guy that oversaw the death of his friend in ministry, Stephen. The guy that Philip had stay at his house is the guy that was causing such havoc that Philip had to leave Jerusalem. How many widows did Paul make? How many orphans did Paul make? And Philip opens up his house to him 20 years later. That's amazing. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I would love to see the first interaction between Paul and Philip. I mean, do they just hug each other and just stop and think of what Jesus has done in both of their lives? This is the guy that opens his house up to the guy that oversaw the death of his friend and brother in ministry. This is the guy that opens up his house to the guy that he had to leave because he's creating such havoc. This is what makes this even more amazing of Philip's heart just to serve and minister together. This is just normal Christianity to stop and say, I don't care about your past. I care about who you are in Christ Jesus right now. It's just an absolutely amazing thing. Just amazing. Now, we have to talk about this, though. This has been brought up now a couple times. Verse 4, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. 
Take a look at verse 10. As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Agabus, if you remember Acts 11, he showed up and predicted a famine that was going to happen. Verse 11. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. Very Old Testament-ish. Kind of giving a practical lesson right here. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying the will of the Lord be done. This is something that's been going on here for a while. Paul has been warned in verse 11. Paul has been warned in verse 4. Jump back to Acts chapter 20. Take a look at verse 22. And see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me. There except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. He knows what he's getting into. He knows what he's getting into. And he's still willing to go do it. Now we'll get to the why here in just a second. But he's still willing to go do it. See, here's the thing. You and I see the same issue, and we see it completely different. I see them warning Paul, and it's like, Paul, you're being warned here. Turn around. Don't go to Jerusalem. Paul stops and says, hey, opportunity for Jesus Christ. I'll go. I'll get arrested, and I'll preach to the guards that arrest me. I'll preach to the guys that beat me. I'll preach to the judge that's over me. I'll write books in prison. I'll call it Philippians, and people will read it 2,000 years later and be blessed. Paul saw an opportunity for the gospel where everybody else saw danger. That's amazing. Because if I was warned like this, I wouldn't be going, right? Paul stopped and said, no, no, this is of the Lord. I know this is of the Lord. And I'm willing to go through this trial and tribulation because it furthers the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine you had a friend, a family member that you desperately wanted to know Christ. I mean, desperately wanted to know. And God says, hey, I'm going to move in their life. They're going to get saved. Amen. But the way I'm going to move in their life is I'm going to move through you. Your trials and tribulations. Your trials and tribulations will lead them to the Lord. But can't you find a different way? There's a lady I know, and her husband died very tragically of cancer. And it was one of those, a fairly quick diagnosis, uh, diagnosed with cancer and died some months later. But when he was diagnosed with cancer, he was not saved, did not know Christ. During the time of the cancer diagnosis and before his death, he got saved. And I remember doing his funeral and I remember talking to her and asking her how she was doing. And I remember her saying, I'll never forget this, how she thanked the Lord for her husband getting cancer because that's what led him to Christ. That's amazing. She thanked the Lord because that cancer led him to the cross of Christ. And she said, I lost my husband on this earth, but I have him for all of eternity now. That's deep. I look at Paul saying, hey, chains await me. Amen. Bring it on. I can spread the gospel that way. One of the reasons we went down to Mexico as well, we had already gotten our passports. We were already planning on going down to minister and spend time with Bree. But after we'd already applied for our passports, we got a call from a pastor. He's the Spanish ministry pastor of Calvary Chapel, Anaheim. And he called up, and he knows a guy that I know a guy, Pastor George, that we've done Muslim outreach ministry before with. And George says, you need to call uh, James in Ohio. So he calls me in Ohio. And he says, you know, brother, uh, we're doing a church plant down in Mexico. And I said, um, we're getting ready to go to Mexico. Where are you doing the church plant at? And it's, uh, it's a town by the name of La Gloria. 
And it just happens to be right where we're going. And he goes, this, you know, this is amazing. Um, will you come down and take a look at the church plan? And I said, you know, sure, I'll contact you when we get down there. So God opened the door. So we get down there. It's been a few days. We've been in Mexico. And the guy and I are emailing back and forth, and he swings by to pick me up to go take a look at this church plan. And so as we're going and we're driving, heading down into uh, farther south into Mexico, it's a whole other world. It just keeps getting stranger, weirder, more dangerous, and it just keeps going. We stop, meet the pastor. So now it's uh, Pastor Ferdinand. It's uh, a brother from uh, Salvador. His name is Juan that's coming, and then I'm with the uh, Spanish pastor from Anaheim. And that was, it was a fairly decent area that we were in. And he goes, oh, this isn't where the church is at. Okay, well, what are we doing now? So now we're going to keep going farther. So we keep going farther, and we get into this area that is, is quite interesting, to say the least. And the pastor I'm with looks at me and goes, yeah, man. He goes, this is like the Wild West. You call 911, ain't nobody coming to help you out here. So I'm like, well, then why, why are we here? Um, you know, if God's already here, I don't need to be. And so we go, and we get to the church that he's hoping to use. And this church has no windows, uh, no doors. And so if you want to go in the church, you crawl through a window. There's no window. You crawl through a hole. And the door is all barricaded up. And the reason the door is barricaded up is because people are coming and offering animal sacrifices in the church because the spiritual oppression is that big. So they're actually coming in and killing dogs in the church and leaving the bodies there, cutting them in half to scare away the pastor and scare away the church plant. And so... They were telling me about how people are actually fasting against the church. Think about that for a second. Fasting against the church. That's a whole other level of spiritual oppression. I've had people not like me. I've had people threaten me. I've had people say awful, horrible things. As far as I know, no one has ever fasted against me. And as far as I know, no one has ever come over and left half-dead dogs on my doorstep. So we're at the church plant, and we're talking about it, what they need, and what it comes down to is they need resources, and this is what we're praying about. Part of the reason why we're so blessed, if you weren't here for the message last week, is we're blessed as a church so we can go bless other people. And so pray about that. That's what we're praying about. But here the pastor is wanting to build a second story out of block, and it's a different world down there. No permits, no government influence, no nothing. They can build the second floor, he guessed, in 21 days. You just show up with the bricks, and you just start doing it because... There's nobody to check in with. You're actually building off another building, which is okay because you can just do that. So he's going to do this, and here's the catch. His wife and him and his kids are going to live right there at the church. There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's no toilets. There's no nothing, and that's where they're going to live, right there where the animals are being killed, right there where people are fasting against. And the reason why, if you ask him, is because these people need to know Jesus. And he wants to go make disciples and send out disciples and change the gloria for Jesus Christ. I hear that, and I'm like, when are we heading back home? Because um, I didn't, I mean, we're here with sacrificing dogs and spiritual oppression, and this is where he wants to live. And yeah, and he's excited because he gets to impact these people for Christ. That's just normal. See, it's not normal to us, but that's just normal. That's a guy from southern Mexico that knows there's a town where people need to be saved, and he goes, the best thing I can do is go live there. And represent Jesus Christ to them. I look at Paul. Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit says you're going to be bound. You're going to be put in chains. Awful, horrible things. And Paul's response, verse 13. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem. For the name of our Lord Jesus. Jump back to Acts 20, verse 24. How could Paul say this? 
None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I see from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, if you remember correctly last week, Paul already realized he was a dead man. So therefore, what do I have left to lose? I've already given everything over to Christ. Paul uses this amazing example. He uses it in 2 Timothy 4 and he uses it in Philippians. He says, my life is a drink offering. If you're not familiar with the drink offering, it comes from the book of Exodus. What they would do in the early morning sacrifice, they would take something valuable, usually it's wine, and they would pour out the wine either on the altar, on the ground, or something like that. You see it also in the book of Genesis. It's a beautiful picture of giving your life completely over to the Lord. I have my cup of water right here. If I take my cup of water and I dump it on the ground, I'm not getting that water back. It's gone. Drink offering. I have poured this valuable drink of wine onto this altar, onto this ground. There's no way I can get it back. It shows giving your life completely over to Jesus Christ that you can't get it back because you've given it to him. So when Paul says, I have given my life as a drink offering, not once, not twice, he said, I've already poured my life out to Jesus. So if he says, go to Jerusalem and be bound in chains, then I'm going to do it because it's going to further the gospel. I encourage you to go read the book of Philippians if you don't got anything you're doing for devotions right now. Remember that book was written in prison. Remember that book was written after this time of him being arrested in Acts 21 where he stops and says, hey, guess what? The palace guards got saved. Well, how'd they get saved? Because they're chained to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There was nothing to hold back. And that's my point. It's not this legalistic take a vow of poverty. No. It is, I've already given it all to you, Lord. There's nothing to hold back. What do you want? Pour my life out as a drink offering. Okay, here it is. It's not my stuff. It's your stuff. Let's just go out and live the life. And I want you to take out of today what is considered normal. Normal is this, according to the Lord. So if this is normal, let's just go live it. Does it mean making some changes? You bet. Does it mean change your mental mindset? You bet it does. Does it happen overnight? No, it doesn't. The Bible calls about a sanctification process where you're becoming more and more like Jesus, hopefully every day. You're dying to yourself every day. We're learning to live for him. And that's what I see here with Philip. That's what I see here with Paul. That's what I see with their families of, Lord, let's just go out and do it. So everybody just considers that normal because that's what the Bible says it is. Worship team, if you want to come forward here for the final song. You're doing the um, same song you did at the 830? Seek.